This is Patrick Russell from the Making History Project. I'm interviewing Rock Merritt for the second time. This interview is taking place um, on October the 16th, 2014 in uh, Dallas, Texas. And this interview is being conducted by the Making History Project for a project named War and Peace, Memories from World War II. Um, when we last uh, spoke, we were in uh, Normandy, at La Fierre, on a cool, brisk day for the 70th um, anniversary of the Normandy invasion. And um, why don't we continue with um, Market Garden, because I don't think we got to that point. What was your involvement in Market Garden? Okay. When we came out of uh, Normandy, I think in uh, around what, July the 15th or something like that, 33 days from June the 6th, anyway, you know. And uh, they held a regimental formation, and the total count was 880. That meant we went into Normandy with 2,000, 2,152 men, and we come out 33 days later with 880 which is about a 70% casualty rate. You know, that, that included over 300 killed and the rest of them wounded or prisoners of war, you know. So we had that memorial formation after Norm. Then they gave everybody, those 880, a five or seven day leave. Uh, so some went to Ireland, Scotland, and London, and what have you. When we came back, and everybody had been there, taking their seven-day seven leave, we started training again. And I recall in around the middle of uh, August, we got a call to go to the airport. We was going to jump in front of George Patton's Third Army. And uh, we rolled up and everything, got all the planes loaded with our equipment bottles, what have you, and got in the planes, and the word came down that Patton was sitting on our drop zone. So they canceled the drop for Normandy. So we went back to Nottingham, England, you know, and then later on we got another one. This time, you guessed it, it was Patton sitting on the drop zone the second time, so they called that off. Now we got alerted for Operation Market Garden. We were told it was a British operation, would be command, commanded by the Corps, a General Browning, I believe his name was, British, British that we'd be under his command. So we, they selected Sunday, September the 17th to go. I remember it was a, a nice, brisk, sunny day, about 70 degrees outside, beautiful gather. When we took off, 10, 10.30, something like that in the morning, and flew flying over 
Nine Megan, the 82nd Airborne Division, was to drop in Nine Megan. The 101st, they were to be dropping in front of the General Dempsey's 2nd Army, and they was to take bridges and causeways and what have you, and uh, all the way up to Nijmegen, meet, meet us up in Nijmegen. We were to take Nijmegen, the city of Nijmegen, and all the high grounds around there, and uh, eventually the 82nd did take the Nijmegen Bridge. Contrary to a lot of people say, I was told by a lieutenant colonel that nobody was given the mission of taking the Nijmegen Bridge until we landed. After we landed and what have you, on the original thrust, it should have been in it, but nobody was supposed to take it. So anyway, 504, under the command of Colonel Tucker, they commanded, they took the Nijmegen Bridge and what have you. We had on the drop zone, in my area, we had very few, we captured one German on a three-day pass on a bicycle. Uh, some of the other sections had a little, like Leonard Funk uh, from C Company 508. They, they run in some anti-aircraft guns and they knocked them out, Leonard Funk did, and his crew. And uh, I was, I'm now, I'm a section sergeant with four machine guns attached to me and I, in my possession, and I was assigned to A Company 508. In other words, when I jumped, I was to assemble with A Company, and I did. We assembled A Company intact with my machine guns attached to them. All within one hour, we were ready to go. So we moved out to the high grounds around uh, outside of Nijmegen, and they put me and my four machine guns on a roadblock, Gardner Road. By this time now, it's probably two or three o'clock in the afternoon. Everything was quiet. I've dug my four machine guns in, had them crossfired on this road. And next morning, I go back to the company ACP to see what's going on. A company's not there. They moved out during the night and left me un unsupported by a rifle company or nothing else. Four machine guns on a crossroad all by ourselves. Period. No one around me. Nothing. How did something like that happen? I don't know. See, well, they just, somebody when they got ready to move out, A Company to move in the city of Nijmegen, A Company and B Company, evidently Somehow or another, they forgot they had a set of machine guns in a roadblock. We were told if you get lost or something, report to the Nijmegen Bridge. Now I've got 20 men and myself, and I'm, what, a mile and a half from the city of Nijmegen? and I headed for Nijmegen.
four machine guns, four squads at eight o'clock in the morning. Monday morning, 18th. How, how did you make the decision to leave? Well, there was nobody around me. I'm all by myself. And going with what I was told, if you get lost, I wasn't lost, but somebody was lost around me. And so I just it said, go to the bridge, you know? So that's, I headed for the bridge. So your training told you that at that point, you needed to get the heck out of it. Yeah, so I... Uh, and this is to protect yourself and your men. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going, I got to sit in my, now I'm making skirts of mine. I'm walking down the street. I'm going by the Bonhoff, the train station. I've got 10 men on one side of the street, 10 men on the other. Two squads on each side of the street. And I'm leading them. And all the people from Holland, the city of Naomi come out. They were hugging people, giving them orange, uh, apples and orange juice and wine and everything. Uh, I looked back once and I couldn't even see my 10 men on each side of the street for the civilians, right? Then all of a sudden, an MG 42 or 43, 34, busted right down the middle of the highway, out of the street, far. I looked back, I didn't see a civilian time. I seen nothing but 20 men laying flat on their belly that, from that machine gun. Then they rolled over and what have you, and we got out of there, got out off the sidewalk, you know, where, where they couldn't hit us because there's buildings on each side of us. How did the civilians get out of there so fast? I don't know. They got out well, of there faster I guess than your they, men. They were houses that belonged to them there, I guess. And when that machine gun, of course, keep in mind, I hit the deck too. I'm down and poor. Then I, then I get up to look. It was, you know, it was probably 15 or 20 seconds left. And that, that gives plenty of time for them civilians to get into their houses or what have So anyway... They left, and I I moved on, and uh, this German machine gun didn't fire more on me until we got where I could see the bridge. I could see the bridge, and they fired again. Then I deployed two squads on one side of the street, two squads on the other. Keep in mind these buildings everywhere. We're in town. So now by this time it's probably 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, I figured, I made an assumption I guess that uh, my A company that I was attached to come in that town and took the town and uh, they crossed the bridge and left a few stragglers bridge, uh, Germans, that's what I thought. So we kept on farming back and forth with M1 rifles and machine guns. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, we still are. So you're still pinned down, you can't yeah. move. Now, you can tell the difference between American machine gun farm and a German. There's no, I mean, it's just different. How do you describe it? One sounds like a buzzsaw, right? Isn't that well, how they we, describe it? We, we fire 500, five, 600 rounds a minute. The German 
MG-34, that was our live machine gun. It fired 1,200 rounds a minute. And the MG-42, it fired something like 1,500 rounds a minute. And uh, the American was more uh, a thub type shooting, I guess you are, as where our Germans was uh, just going like that. You could tell the difference. So, S2 of the 508 was back uh, somewhere off the drop zone, wherever regimental headquarters was, you know. They were always behind the line. They heard this man, and Colonel Lindquist said, that's an American machine gun in town. So he said to a lieutenant S3, take, take a lieutenant and a couple of soldiers, go into Nijmegen, I want to know who in the hell is firing them American machine guns. And this is coming from the other side of the bridge. Yeah, no, no, we ain't, we ain't got nobody across the bridge yet. Okay. It's back in the rear. Okay. So it, I'm sitting there, by this time, it's time the S2 lieutenant got there and his two privates. He come and he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I think A Company must have took this town and they must have took the bridge across and they left some staggler, stragglers here. These Germans are firing me and we can't move. And he said, Sergeant, you're the only, <clears throat> Only game in town. Said, yeah, A Company did go in. They went into A Company, in, into Nijmegen. They lost a lot of people at midnight fighting, you know, shooting each other and what have you. But they got word to move out around daylight because the Germans were counterattacking our drop zone, the one that the gliders were going to come in on that day. We had to have that, so they pulled them out. So anyway. So here okay. you thought that the Americans were already on the other side of the bridge. I did. I thought there was. And, and uh, in fact, I you're the that, only one there. I, we were the only ones there. Only pe 20 people, 20 Americans, 21 Americans in town. So he pulled me back. We got back at about 5 o'clock on the 18th. My battalion commander was Shields Warren. He he uh, he jumped in as a, as a battalion exec. The red battalion commander, Colonel Batchelor, he got killed on D-Day, and Colonel Warren, Major Warren, he took over as a battalion commander. Shields Warren, and uh, he was still no, he was a, he was a colonel now, because Batchelor got killed in Normandy, and he took over, and before. Operation Mark Garden, they'd promoted him to Lieutenant Colonel. He's now a battalion commander. So I reported to him what happened. I said, sir, they left me out on that damn roadblock. Any, you know, a German a squad could have wiped me out, you know, basically, you know. But anyway, he, uh, he detached me from A Company there because I'd been in town all day because A Company was going to attack Devil's Hill at 6 o'clock that evening. He detached me and attached me to C Company, Leonard Punk's company, and he took the, the other section saw the machine gun that had 
four of my guns and 20 men, attached them to A Company. A Company attacked, they attacked Devil's Hill, got a lot of people killed. And the Buck Sergeant in charge of the section that took my place, he got killed. Bowling, Sergeant Bill L.I.N., he got killed also. We lost a lot of men on Devil's Hill. So anyway, we, uh, the next day on the drop zone, gliders were still coming in and the Germans still trying to take it and we fought all day for that. And they had the biggest dogfight of German fighters and American P-51s and 47s that I'd seen. I didn't see that many in Normandy. These were fighting over city of Nijmegen, and I'm gonna tell you, the P-51s, they done a job on the German jets, you know. You could see them all shot down. It was a big fight, you know, in there. So anyway, all the glidermen come in, all the heavy equipment come in, we, we got this secured. And uh, we moved on in to the outskirts of Nijmegen. We didn't move in time. 504 with some British rubber boats or something, they crossed, uh, they crossed the, the river and took, took, the, uh, took the bridge. Now the bridge is in China to us. And we stayed there off and on, I think, about two weeks. Then we moved us across the river and attached us to some British company over there, you know. And uh, then we stayed over there with them practically, as far as I'm concerned, I would say the end of September, after we crossed over the bridge, as far as I'm concerned, the war from the 508 was over. We were over there, and uh, all we did, we, we was in the defense. We didn't attack at all. All we had, we had listening posts out every night, you know, at the Germans. We knew that they, they fed their main meal at midnight every night. We knew that, what have you. And of course, ten miles beyond us was the Arnheim, where the British was. But when we moved over, General Dempsey's Second Army had come all the way up, and they had got to Nijmegen, and they stopped there for Nijmegen for some reason or another. Well, they had tea, and they stayed all night. Colonel Tucker, he wanted to take his 504 and go over there and help out the uh, British 1st uh, Airborne Division that was over getting slaughtered. But Gavin didn't have the authority to let him do that because we was working under the British Corps commander. And where's he at? He's in a basement somewhere in one of the big buildings with the wrong crystal in his radios. He couldn't communicate with nobody. And they got Major Frost for the British, and, and to this day, no one has answered me. Why was a Major at the end of the bridge at Arnheim 
in charge of a division. Where was the colonels and where was the brigadier generals and all that? I know where the corps commander was. Where was the division commander? All that stuff, you know. Nobody, they don't want to talk about it. Nobody. I've talked to British British officers and whatever. They don't talk about it, you know. But anyway, we didn't go over until uh, second, second, uh, the British Second Army got to Arnheim. But before they got to Arnheim, how did the people get, uh, Frost people got it? They withdrew themselves under the darkness, separate routes of really, a, uh, I guess, amazing feat to withdraw out. And they just withdrawed out and the time of uh, Second British Second Army got there, they went nobody on Arnheim Bridge. They'd already pulled back, you know. And I think we we stayed there something like 63 days total, and we marched 25 miles back to get on trucks or something, and they moved us back to Soissons, France, you know, in there. The guy that wrote the book, Bridge Too Far, Corsilius Ryan, in 1973, he come to Fayetteville, North Carolina, where I was a Corps and Post Sergeant Major, and he went in to talk to Lieutenant General Sites, the Corps, and, and General Sites says, well, I didn't make that Operation Market Garden, but my Sergeant Major did. He said, would you mind if he come in here? And he said, no, he come in. He gave me and the General an autographed book, Carcillus Ryan. He was dying with cancer then, but nobody knew it, you know, what have you. And the premier showing was in Fayetteville that night. If I recall, they had the, the mayor had 25 people that had made the Market Garden operation jump up on stage after the movie had showed to answer questions and what have you, you know. So General Seitz, he asked Corsilius Ryan, he said, in your opinion, because it took him five years of research to write, to, to publish that book, said, in your opinion, what was the three most important things that went wrong with Operation Market Garden. And he said, well, number one, I don't understand 15th German Army under the command of Field Marshal von Ronstead. He was a guy that defended Normandy and Hitler relieved him because we come ashore. But now he called him back to active duty and he was reorganizing the 15th German Army in Amsterdam, I mean in, uh, in Holland there. So how can you, and we flew over all the time taking pictures for this invasion. How do you miss a German army in Arnheim, a German army? And he said, you picked the wrong day also. It, it, on the 17th, I guess at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, von Ronstead's army was on the road going to Aachen, Germany, where the first American army had gave Aachen, Germany, an ultimatum. They'd either surrender or they was going to 
burn the town down or something like that, and they're sending him. But when he's, you know, and here come the, the British Airborne Division dropping, they turned around and they stopped. What have you? So he said, they picked the wrong day. You know, I don't know how they didn't see that German, that 15th German Army being organized. And he said, the second thing, that captain from the 82nd Airborne Division, it was a briefer, a tail briefer for Operation Market Garden. He would leave out the bridge at Arnheim. And, and Field Marshal Montgomery would say, what about the bridge at Arnheim? And the captain would say, sir, that bridge is too far. You know, and finally, Montgomery told General Gavin, that captain, I think, got combat fatigue. Take him off the br briefing. They did. They let him go on leave or something. They took him off. And he said, the third, the third reason that you only had one commander in the entire United States Army or entire the whole world that had ever commanded a unit, airborne unit that big. That's Matthew B. Ridgway of the 18th Airborne Corps, which is at 15,000 feet above Arnhem and I'm watching the procedure go on, see? And so he said, you had the wrong commander in there. Should have had Matthew B. Ridgway. That's his three things he said given to him. So anyway, then with that, he signed the book gave me one, and gave uh, General Sites one, and less than a year later he died with cancer, for Sears Swan did. So that was, that was the end of that. Uh, we did not go back to England. We, we went back to, we went to France, and we stayed in, in Soissons, France, which is, I don't know, 20 or 30 miles from uh, Reims, from Reims, France, and we gave 50% of the command a three-day pass to Paris. We turned our guns in to be blued and, and re-app, you know, and uh, so about the time that we'd completed the uh, three-day pass into Paris, what have you. It was the uh, 17th day of December. I was in an NCO club. I was shooting dice. I'll never forget it. I won $1,400 shooting dice. And they come over and say, hear this, now hear this. Everybody report back to your barracks. You've been alerted to go to the Battle of the Bulls at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. And it's 11 o'clock. We moved back in the barracks. We ain't got no weapons. We turned them in. I don't know how fast they got. We got M1 rifles, machine guns, and Cosmoline. We stayed up all night taking, of course, we had cleansing material, gasoline and stuff to clean them. So we got And this is on the morning of the 18th. They put us uh, in cattle trucks, and it's snowing, and we're taken out. Rumor had it 
that we were supposed to went into Bastogne. The 101st was supposed to went on to Vilsom. Rumor had it that the 101st was not ready. They didn't get ready for 6 o'clock in the morning. And General Gavin changed the orders that we would go, the 82nd would go to, to Vilsom, and the 101st would stop at Bastogne. You know, how true that is, I don't know, but but uh, they don't want to talk about it because that'd be said, you know. And of course, Gavin now, keep in mind, he's a Corps commander. The Corps commander's not there. The 101st Division's commander's in the States, and Gavin is a brand new two-star general, and uh, McCullough, the guy that said nuts to the Germans, he was in charge of 101st, and he was a brigadier general, and so poor old General Gavin, he got in his Jeep and he went all over alerting all them people in Miami. I guess he'd done a tremendous job. I don't know where Ridgeway was. Seems to me like he was in England or someplace. I don't know. Maybe he was in the States, but he didn't get there. I know that until Gavin, I don't know, I guess we'd been in, a, in the Battle of Balls maybe a couple of weeks before Ridgeway ever showed up. In our, and I don't know if Major uh, General Taylor ever did show up. I don't know. But, well, we know one thing. He wasn't there when that German come in and direct, requested they surrender, you know, and <laughs> the German, he, he didn't know. He wanted an explanation what nuts meant. And he said, in American language, it means go to hell. That's what you said, you know. So anyway, we unveiled some, and we were there on Christmas Eve. That's how long we'd been there from the seventeenth. Keep in mind, we fought our way into Vilsom. We didn't just walk in. On Christmas Eve, we had to word, we're going to withdraw. When you shipped in on the eighteenth, huh? No. Sorry. Well, that didn't go over good with the troops. 82nd had never withdrawn. They was always forward. Every piece of land they took, they took it and kept going. But they come back and Gavin issued an order that it was not a withdrawal. It was withdrawal to straighten out the line. We knew that was wrong because this lieutenant from A Company he blowed the bridge at Vilsom when the first Mark VI tank got on it. Here's a bridge down in the Mark VI tank sitting there. That's how close they got. So if we hadn't withdrawn on Christmas Eve, you know, they would overrun us. There was no doubt about it. If the, that 6th German armored division had got across there, keep in mind, we didn't have no armor there. All we had was the... 508, parachute entry regiment. That's all an instrument. That's all we had. And what do we have? Anti-tank anti weapons was a, called a bazooka, you know? And you, all it could do, if you hit the tread of a Mark VI, it would knock a tread off. But if you didn't do that, it would it just bounce right off of it, you know, off of the tank, you know? So anyway, 
we moved back, I don't know, straightened this line out about, I guess we marked about 10 miles that night. And uh, we stayed there, I think, in a defensive position until about the 4th of January of, of uh, 1995, uh, 45, and uh, then we attacked back towards some all day long. It took us, and but we got it. We got into this time. We didn't go into town. We went up on the hill, looking down on Vilsom, you know, what have you, and uh, we went into defensive position there. Then they come out with. While they were in that defense position, the regiment, let's see, they had, I'm trying to figure out how, how many companies they had. We had four in a battalion, that's 12. We had 15 companies. Every company in the regiment, and every company in the division, quite a few people, selected one man for a 10-day leave back in the States. The criteria for that was who had been on in the front lines along us, who had the most decorations in there, and uh, what have you. And it, me and another guy was tied. George Stuckert, you've heard me talk about George Stuckert. He was a company commander. He called me down there and uh, said, you know, we got a tie here and we're going to flip a coin. They flipped a thruppence, a British something equivalent to a nickel or dime. And uh, I called heads and it fell heads. Then I had to go to see Colonel Warren. I'll never forget, he was in the CP, it was snowing. Had his back to me and he's looking out the window. And he and I didn't have no platoon leader. Both my platoon leaders, first a first lieutenant and second lieutenant, had been wounded, medevac back, and I was the only all by myself. And he uh, he said, "I understand you're the one that's selected to go for ten days leave in the states." I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "I was thinking about putting you in for a battlefield commission." What do you think about that? I said, sir, I'd rather have 10 days with my wife with those silver leaves on your shoulder. He turned around right back fast, he stuck his hand out and he said, I don't blame you a damn bit. But he said, your platoon will be ready for it when you come back. And it was, when I come back, they'd already promoted someone to a tech sergeant. I was a staff sergeant, that's all I was authorized. While I was gone, all platoon sergeants went up to sergeant first class, tech sergeant. And they had a tech sergeant. By the time I got back, I got back in England, in Lahore, France, the day the war ended. It was what, May the 9th, I believe, 1945. And I got there, and he, he sent this guy that took my place and recorded down to uh, some place in France to set up an R&R &R center for our troops. And I took over the platoon, and I stayed with it until the 508 deactivated in Camp June, I mean, uh, New Jersey, 
in February the 6th, I think, 1946, period. And of course, then, we, before it was deactivated, I joined the regular army. Before, I was just, I was a U.S., you know. And uh, I, uh, when I joined the regular army, and we deactivated the 508, we were told, you're either going to Fort Benning, Georgia, or Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That was, at that time, was only two airborne posts we had in the army. So I went to, 504, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, from there, I, uh, I made battalion sergeant major. And uh, then I, from battalion sergeant major, I'm one of the few people went from battalion sergeant major all the way to a corps. I jumped all them ranks. I mean, but one thing a lot of people don't understand, there were no separate, in, uh, no battalions in the regiment or any division or any corps or any army that was authorized as sergeant major, command sergeant major until 1964. Patton didn't have a sergeant major. Eisenhower didn't have one. MacArthur didn't have one. Simple reason, they wasn't authorized one. The only people was authorized were up until 1964 was a regimental, always have, has always been a regimental sergeant major. Even back in the Civil War days and all that, you'll find a regimental sergeant major. And a battalion, he had, it had to be a separate battalion, not a battalion within a regiment. If you had a battalion, like the 1st Battalion, 508, they wouldn't, we didn't have them. They had a guy they called him, but he was a chief clerk, 71 Lima. You know, MOS. Not, and they used him as a sergeant major, but he, if you looked at his title, it would be chief clerk, not sergeant major, you know, what have you. But then, in 1964, all battalions got sergeant major, division got sergeant major, corps got sergeant major, and the army got sergeant major, see, what have you. And uh, so, I... Uh, they sent me to Vietnam when I had 30 years in the Army, when I went to Vietnam. But How old were you then? Well, I was 30 years, uh, that was in, uh, let's see, they sent me there in uh, 1970, and I was born in, what, 23? So I guess I was 57 years old. But and I'd just come out of Korea, which was un, it was called a un, uh, let's see, what was it, what do they call it? It was an undesirable tour. I couldn't take my wife with me, see. And they said, this command sergeant major branch called and said, I can't send you overseas, you just got back from Korea. You've been back six months, but at the end of six months, I can send you. And we have a lieutenant general here in Desper that his sole purpose in life is to see that every command sergeant major goes to Vietnam. And he says, 
I have got a prima job for you right now. But if we wait six months, you may wind up as a battalion sergeant major uh, fighting in these shrubs over here. I said, what's that assignment you got for me now? He said, you'll be the command sergeant major at Cameron Bay. I said, what do I have to do? He said, you need to send a 1049. That was a letter that you requested all stuff on. That you waiver your six months from back from, from Korea. And I was saying, so he did. So I went over there. And I tell you, it had one little scrap fight over there, and that was it. Some satchel chargers come into Cameron Bay throwing satchel grenades into the barracks and didn't mount to nothing, you know. And uh, it had it had more stuff in Fort Bragg. It had massage, massage parlors, ice cream parlors, ice cream factories, NCO club, officers club, and they even had a, a little White House built up on the hill for the President Johnson was going to come over. And I stayed there. Then I come back, and I was getting ready to retire. Now I come back, I got 31 years in the Army. And I had to, I had to retire. And uh, the Colonel called me in. I was a DISCOM command sergeant major, and he said, Guess what? We got an email here. You have been selected, you and four other command sergeant majors, for five additional years in the Army to see if the enlisted NCOs have any potential after 30 years. I said, okay. If, I said, and I just come back from Korea and Vietnam. I knew I wasn't going to go nowhere, so I said, I'll take it. And then, when I done that, the Corps Commander, uh, Lieutenant General Seitz, one I talked about, he brought me up as his command sergeant major, as a three-star general. So I stayed there, and uh, that was my second time as a Corps sergeant major, you know. So anyway, then at the end of uh, that five year, additional years, I, uh, I had 35 years, almost 36 years in, you know, so they, they kicked me out at 36 years. That was uh, December the 7th, December the 30th, December the 1st, I guess, and 1977, I got out of the Army, you know. With a little over thirty, almost, almost thirty-six years of service, you know, what have you? And here I am. Time. Here I am with you. You know. Yeah. You tell me a little bit what it was like to be in an airplane getting ready to jump. What was that experience like? What was everybody thinking, talking, doing? Was it quiet? Yeah, what was that? A regular jump or a combat jump? Combat or? jump. Regular combat jump. What happened in that plane right, you know, minutes before? What was going on? Normandy was the one where we all got slaughtered, where we lost uh, everybody except 800 and some odd men. Those were, they looked pretty good. They're calm, they're smoking cigarettes, and uh, 
we uh, the plane was rocking and rolling, so people were vomiting and everything. It was a mess, and, and the small arms was hitting that metal plane. You could hear it, you want heavy, and uh, but up until that time, it's pretty good. But then when we got to go into Holland, you could look down the two rows. And you could tell who jumped in Normandy and who didn't. What was the difference? The people in Normandy, you know, they they were a little shaky. The guys that never jumped, you know, they're kind of calm, you know. They they don't know what's going to happen. But lo and behold, so of course Normandy was night jump, and Holland was a day jump, and uh, what have you. And uh, I was a pushmaster in Holland. Pushmaster. Is the last man in the plane that jumps. You're kicking the guy almost literally, right? Yeah, and he, he also, the middle man throws a toggle switch that releases all equipment bottles underneath the belly of the plane. And the pushmaster, when he comes by, he, he makes a swipe to be sure all the toggle switches are down. What heck? So I was a, I, I, uh, I was on, and I watched him. I, I un unhooked and walked all the way down to the end of the plane where the door's at. And I had a second lieutenant there, and he he thought I was going to fall out or something. It was his first jump too, you know. And and he come, he asked me to go back and hook up. He said for the troops. And I said okay, I will. But I noticed him. But we we didn't hit no 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 anti aircraft or no small arms or nothing hit our plane going into Holland. I would say Holland dropped. I would say we didn't probably didn't lose a man in the in the whole division. It was a milk run, as far as I was concerned. A drop. The whole division was was assembled within an hour. That's unreal. They were assembled in an hour and ready to go. You know. And anyway, and then going back to uh, once you made your first five qualifying jumps, what have you. People, uh, they they sweated those out, I would say, up until you got about 20, 25 jumps. When you got that, you got over the head. Before that, if you come, you come up on the bulletin board that you're jumping tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. You go to bed at night, you think about it. We get over 25 jumps, you get over that. You don't think about it at all until you get ready, uh, green light, a red light comes on and you stand up and hook up, then you got a little butterflies in your stomach. Okay, it's just, it's just not natural for a man to jump out of a plane at 1,500 feet with a little ball of silk on his back. If a guy tells me no, and I've never had butterflies, I'll tell him he's either a liar or he's an idiot, one of the two, you know. Because, but anyway, and I have talked to some of these skydivers that's got 3,000, 4,000 feet. They, uh, when they say where they get, were they not scared, none at all, they quit. I got a guy who lives right across the street from me, a retired command sergeant major. He got 4,000 parachute jumps, skydive. And he said, he just got, careless with them, it didn't bother him at all, 
he packed his own chute and just throwed it together in 40 minutes or something like that. And uh, said, you know, I just got where I wasn't scared at all. And he said, I decided to quit. So he did, you know. And some of them that's got mostly skydivers, that they jump 15,000 feet. Well, we jumped at 1,500. They call it target fixation, where they look, they jump in a six-inch six disc for competition, you know, and they got their, their eyes fixed on that target fixation. And some of them just keep on watching and never pull the reserve. They go right in on it, you know. But, you know, so anyway, uh, very, there's very few, but I've heard of uh, two or three like that happening at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, you know. Anyway. You mentioned earlier in Holland how you were pinned down by that MG-42. Yeah. Um, you've had that experience before, though, right? Yeah. I, how, do you, I'd how do you deal I'd, with that? I had fought a MT, M, MG-42 and 44. We captured them in Normandy, and Colonel Warren Shields had me and all my gunners for them and make a report what we thought about them. They fought so damn fast, you don't know what in the hell is going on, whether you're hitting anything or not. Foreign 1,500 rounds a minute, you know, where ours were foreign 600 rounds a minute, you know, what have you. So, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I was... Uh, once you once you get out of a field of farm machine gun, you're safe, you know. Like the guy farm down that road, if you move ten feet to the right or ten feet to the left, there's nothing but buildings and sidewalks and telephone poles, and he ain't got no field of farm, you know. You're out of his way, you know. I went back there in '77. Uh, went to the spot where I stopped looking at the uh, bridge. Had machine guns, but this brick building, what have you, and would you believe them brick buildings still there and the, the bullets that hit the brick and just, well, you know, it didn't go through it, just knocked off chips of it. They were still there. They hadn't repaired the them or nothing. Yeah. They're still there, you know. When you deployed in... Uh on the 18th of December, where you were rushed out. Where yeah. you were playing your dice. You say, hey, by six o'clock in the morning, you're shipping out. It's winter, snowing. Yeah. What kind of clothing did you ship out in? We didn't have nothing. We were the poorest. We had no cold weather gear, none. And I'll tell you, on the, on the 19th day of September, I remember an 18-wheeler full of overshoes. A company on the right and a company on the left going by. What size? 10 or 12. Here's a, here's a 14. Take it. And some of them young soldiers didn't know, believe it or not, what size to tell them. You know, they wore an 8-shoe they need a 10 overshoe or something like that. And they throwed it, that's all we got. And we got them on the 19th. I don't know how fast they got them up there, but an 18-wheeler come up there, 
and it had that thing all full of overshoes. And that's all we got. We didn't get nothing else. Period. Gloves? We had we had a shelter hat and a blanket rolled up in a horseshoe roll on our back. And we had well, we did have the World War One wool overcoat. And it weighed, when it got wet, it weighed a ton, I tell you. I remember the first night, we, we dug all night long, dug foxhole all night long to keep from freezing to death. And you had to go down, I don't know, four or five inches of frozen ground before you could really start digging your foxhole. Have to have a pickaxe or something like that to do it with, you know, the ground was cold. But, you mentioned how you saw that that M M uh, what MX six tank Mark six Mark six tank yeah. um, the bottom I guess of the bridge when it was blown yeah did you ever run into a tank out there did what did you ever run into a tank where you had to deal with a tank in the field no I never I, that's as close as I got and when when it went down the Germans they met they 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 unashed that and they gone they're not there. The guy that blew that bridge, they, George Lamb, First Lieutenant George Lamb, they put him in for Medal of Honor, and he got the DSC. If he'd got wounded when he done it or something like that, and, and he kept on going, you know, he'd probably got to Medal of Honor. The regimental demo team was supposed to blow. They blowed it, and it was a dud. And the, the, the lieutenant then went up with his men, I don't know if he used part of their demolition or all of his. I don't know, but I do know he got the credit for blowing it, you know. He was the one, believe it or not, he was from A Company. He was the one that put me in for the Silver Star, George Lamb, on uh, Hill 131. We were we, we're going back to... Uh, Normandy on July the 4th, 1944. The 1st Battalion, 508, moved at the base. Uh, we probably covered this before. We moved to the base of Hill 131 with Ward to hold that at all costs, the last man. That the 2nd and 3rd Battalion was going to come through us at 6 o'clock in the morning and take Hill. 31. When they got up on Hill 31, then that's Hill 95. The 2nd Battalion was going to take that. Where is this located in Normandy? Do you recall the closest village? There wasn't no village. This is just out in the open. Okay. When I was in, I, I went to that, I guess on the 8th or 9th in, in St. Mary Gleese this year, I went to that place. And of course, the vegetation is real, of course, that was 70 years ago, you know, and what have you. But they had a, a loudspeaker, the Germans did, probably on a tree out there about a thousand yards. And, it, you know, wanting us to surrender with the pretty frog lines, clean sheets and good chow and all that, which surrender, you know. And they kept on building that, you know. And then they had this machine gun 
raking our front every once in a while. Just raking it, you know. So I had I had four water cool machine guns online. And uh, so I told I told a lieutenant that I'm going up out there and see if I can't do something to that stupid guy in that tree with that loudspeaker or that machine gun. One, don't have your people to follow me coming back, you know. So George Lamb said, okay. So I went out there. I didn't. You went out by yourself? Oh, yeah. And this was your I idea? I didn't take no weapon. I didn't take no weapon. I took, I took four gammon grenades. You know what a gamma grenade is? It's it's a British one, about the size of a softball, and a black. It looks like a black sock. Got a cap on the front with a tape over it to pull the tape off, unscrew the cap, and it goes off on contact. If you was a tank, I could stand here and throw it. Nothing comes back. Everything goes forward. You know. So I didn't want no weapons. I'm ha I have to crawl out there, you know. And it was raining too. Raining and it's miserable. What have you. I walked back. I walked back. I crawled out and I walked back when I blew up the machine gun, you know. And this was your idea by yourself. Yeah. And you were tired of hearing that speaker and, yeah, that, and, and that, him firing at you. Well, they they knocked out one of my machine guns too with an armor-piercing shell that, that, that hit the uh, the barrel, the round barrel that held nine pints of water. And it's water-cooled. The A4s are air-cooled. This one is water-cooled. If you don't have water, you ain't gonna last very long with one of them because it'd burn up, you know, so what have you. So they use the, I don't know my citation reads, it was one of his machine guns knocked out, but that, that didn't, that, that didn't, that wasn't what put me out there. I was just getting tired of this crap that he was putting on. It was two o'clock in the morning. It was on, a, it was on the morning of the 4th of July, you know. They got the, the little town that's close to it uh, on, on the citation, and I don't know, I don't know what it is, you know, but, you know, they did, they used I guess they said the foot of hill one night in, in, in the vicinity. That's the way out of this little town or something, you know, whatever. So you crawl out there and tell me what happens. What do you see? I've seen three people on a machine gun nest. This, this wasn't my, believe it or not, this wasn't my first machine gun knock. I didn't get nothing for the first one on D-Day. Well, we jumped at 2.30. It's 7 o'clock in the morning we pinned down and the lieutenant didn't even know me. There were 17 of us trying to get a symbol. We pinned down and he said, Corporal, we had an officer had the vertical white stripe on the back of his helmet. We had the horizontal. He said, Corporal, take two men, go out there and knock out that machine gun, you know. 
I'm gonna come out. I ain't, I ain't got none of my men. I ain't run on them yet. I don't know these guys. I did. I knew one of them, a supply sergeant that got reduced, staff sergeant. Twenty-four years old. I was an old man in the Airborne. We were seventeen, eighteen years old, nineteen. I took him and another guy, and this is where we run into the tactics that the Germans were firing. One gun with tracers, three feet off the ground. Another with no tracers, a machine gun, firing something like 12, 13 inches off the ground. We got in. So we got in there, and, and this guy picked the other guy. I didn't know him later on. He come out of the reform school out of Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. And uh, we got me and this old man, we pinned, he said, you know, you lay me down uh, base of far, and uh, I, he was a small man, he says, I can get under that far, and he had a gamma grenade, I'll knock out that machine gun. He did with one gamma grenade. I come back, and we, we moved on after that, and picked up 17 more men before daylight, the lieutenant that gave me that order, Lieutenant Abbott, he got killed the next day. Nobody put me in for nothing. The, the guy that actually threw the grenade got a bronze star with, with a V in it. You know. So, you recall say, his name? Yeah, I think his name. He got killed in uh, 50 yards from where that tank was sitting on that bridge. 88, he was dug in on this bank, and 88, direct hit on him, just blowing all to pieces. Oh, I thought I'd never get, he's a guy from Paul's Valley Foreign Reform School. He's a good soldier, though. You know, back in them days, they left people out of prison and out of reform schools. The judge would say, I'm going to let you out, but you're going to join the Army. So mm -hmm. you've done that, you know. Oh. I'll think of his name. He's, uh, he's listed in the Bible Way Devils as being killed, you know. Damn. Well, when you get past 90, I hear your mind goes a little bit. It'll come back to me, you know. Yeah. So how many of the gamma grenades did you uh, need to take out that machine gun the second time? I threw two. I had four. I might have thrown all four, but the first two done the job, you know. Boy, they're powerful, you know. I don't know why we don't we didn't use them in Vietnam. You know. We had a class on them in England. They had put this armor up, an inch armor, and they'd back off this guy and, and for me to use and throw it and everything would go forward like that, you know. So nothing would bother you, you know. What was that guy's name? Yeah. Anyway, I'll think of it. Where's well, 12 o'clock? About time we quit.